You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Monster House presents... Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering Monster Talk listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk and look through their incredible collection for your selection download and start listening on your phone your computer or tablet that's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk monster talk is supported by listeners like you find out how you can contribute via patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support your contributions large or small make a huge difference thanks This episode contains content which may be disturbing or unsuitable for some audience members. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Monster Talkers. It is Halloween season, and there is no better way to get in the mood for Halloween than a nice, creepy story. Luckily, the co-host of Monster Talk, your very own Karen Stolznow, has quite a few for you to choose from. From Would You Believe It?, mysterious tales from people you'd least expect, she puts together a fantastic compilation of stories from skeptics, scientists, magicians, of people you'd least expect to have creepy stories. Then we have Haunting America. Karen takes a trip across this nation, finding all the best hauntings, and then reports them back to you. Well, if you don't have time for a whole book right now to get in the mood for Halloween... You have to read her short stories, starting with Unforeseen Circumstances, leading on to Don't Leave Me, to the very chilling I Am Me, and then to Welcome Home Based on a True Story, and her latest, the very urban legend-esque The Dark Road. All these short stories are only 99 cents apiece. You just can't lose. So definitely get in the mood this Halloween. Go to Amazon.com, look up Karen Stoll's No, grab yourself a couple of stories, read them, and review. Happy Halloween. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. 
in Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Despite the popularity of true crime podcasts, I've been reluctant to spend too much time on the topic because of several factors. We'll discuss those in the interview, but the short version is, I'm troubled by how much focus ends up being given to the perpetrators of heinous crimes and how that often leads to the anonymization of the victims. Yet, like many of our listeners... I've always been fascinated by this topic. These are the real monsters, the ones we dread far out of proportion to the risks they present. I was approached by an old friend about covering this topic, and he spent a long time working to decrease victimhood and to seek to stop such criminals as the ones we'll be discussing in this episode. Hopefully, we reach the proper balance between honestly talking about this topic without exalting the perpetrators. I think we manage, but we'll let you be the judge. Let us know. Also, this episode runs pretty long, so I'm going to just say thanks to Stacy Sharp for joining Karen and myself to tackle this topic. Hopefully you'll find it informative and educational. There are a few jokes in here and there, and a few laughs, but hopefully all are in good taste and not disrespectful to the families of the people who still deal with the losses inflicted by these monsters who walk among us. Monster Dog my name is Stacy Sharp, and uh, I've known Blake, I'm almost scared to say, uh, since the early 90s. Uh, <laughs> so long ago. Yeah, it's, it's been a few days. Um, I, I remember Blake before he was skeptical. Um, and, oh. and there's nothing quite like a friend who carries a gun who proceeds to explain to you why his light bulbs are haunted one night. Yeah, you know, that's uh, a really oh, good point. You were there when yeah, I was having so. my haunting. You're absolutely right. I was going to ask about that, yeah, if he yeah. knew about all of those stories. <laughs> no, there was a lot of stuff going on. You were there for all that. That's a cool thing. Wow. Yeah. All the things that you can sit and talk with somebody in a foreign country and you're, you're, you're in uniform and you're in a whole different world, and then it's just, yeah, you like macaroni and cheese? Yeah. Oh, by the way, I have haunted light bulbs. Really? <laughs> Neat. Obvious follow-on. Um, <laughs> they, they do explode so you just, time. You smile and nod a lot. Yeah. Really? <laughs> That's a problem. I can see how that would be unfortunate. Yeah. Well, what I want to know is, Stacey, how did the two of you reconnect again? Did you, were you, did you stay in touch or did you find him through listening to Monster Talk? Uh, no. Um, to the joys of Facebook, connecting with people who were connected with him that we both knew as mutual friends. And then he was the one that told me about Monster Talk. And that would have been 2012, 2013. I couldn't recall. Yeah. That's so. It, I, and I bet I was so, like, I do this show. You might hate it. I don't know. What? <laughs> <laughs> and you were real positive about it. It was, it was early. Obviously, I mean, you guys remember when you started it, it was, it was one mm-hmm. of your earlier days. You guys had a good format. You had good stuff to listen to. I, you, this this is going to sound a little personal. You were my first podcast. Aw, uh, well, you always Aww. remember your first. That's nice. Yeah, <laughs> podcast <laughs> so, urgent. <laughs> so 
I got out of the Navy in 1994, moved back home to Florida, mm-hmm. and went to school at the community college in Gainesville where I was living, got an Associate of Arts, an Associate of Science in Criminal Justice, uh, went to the police academy, and then became a deputy sheriff in Hernando County, which is a semi-rural county about 45 minutes north of Tampa. Uh, as I said, I was a deputy there for eight years. My area of expertise, my specialty was in uh, violence against women, specifically in domestic violence. In that capacity, I was a uniform deputy, but I was also uh, teaching throughout the state and lecturing uh, on the subjects of domestic violence. And I was an instructor and taught with the statewide coalition every year. I was also a a reoccurring guest lecturer, I guess would be the best way to describe it, at the University of South Florida in their women's studies department. I did a lecture for them every semester on uh, rape and popular culture. And towards the end of my time as a deputy, uh, I got my Bachelor of of Arts in uh, Criminology from USF, University of South Florida. And um, also, I wrote the statute that made the, the law that made strangulation a felony in the state of Florida. Prior to that, it had been just a misdemeanor. Wow. wow. Then I decided I didn't have nearly enough debt because to be cool in the United <laughs> States, you got to be really in debt. So I quit my job and moved my family four hours north to Tallahassee and went to law school at um, Florida State University. And I graduated early in two and a half years and became a prosecutor in the area of Panama City, Bay County, uh, for those people that are familiar with that part of Florida. And I was a prosecutor for three and a half years, still doing, uh, still doing my lecturing throughout the state, still talking and teaching. And then in 2013, I moved back to Tallahassee uh, and became a uh, criminal trial defense attorney. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Wow. Oh, incredible career. Um, I, I've done a little bit of uh, uh, continuing ed teaching with the, our local university uh, in the IT world, but I keep thinking about adding on uh, maybe doing some critical thinking classes, but just I think maybe the world needs more of that. People just don't realize how much work goes into a good class. I mean, it's, it's like there's so much oh. work. It's, oh, yeah. When I was prosecuting, um, I was also a, uh, an adjunct professor at Gulf Coast State College there in Panama City and teaching in their legal studies department on criminal law and legal theory and criminal writing. I even taught a course in uh, family law. I love teaching. Absolutely love, love teaching. Well, it was obvious when we were in the Navy, you just love talking about explaining stuff, you know, and a lot of it was law enforcement stuff even back then. But uh, you and me and uh, Brian Newland, I think, spent a lot of time teaching other people. <laughs> <laughs> about all kinds of things and uh, and also dealing with the ghosts that's important too but yeah. you know <laughs> <laughs> well i'm i'm wondering how this distinguished career that you've had translates to uh, an interest in serial killers or was that somewhere along the way part of what you did uh it's a little bit of both it, i came at it from both a personal and a uh, professional direction uh, okay grown up in florida i remember when Ted Bundy murdered the girls in Tallahassee. Uh, You couldn't not be aware of it. Uh, It was such a big deal. Um, The, his last victim was a little girl by the name of Kimberly Leach. He kidnapped her uh, outside of her middle school in Lake city and Lake city was 45 minutes North of where I grew up. And one of my teachers, when I 
got old enough to be in middle school, was the teacher who reported her missing. So you start out with that. I remember when John Wayne Gacy was arrested outside of Chicago. I remember watching that on the news. I remember Mm -hmm. Ted Bundy's trials. You couldn't, you know, they were, for anybody that's seen the, the documentary on Netflix, it was one of the very first nationally broadcast trials. So in Florida, it was on the nightly news at six. It was on the nightly news at 11. It was all anybody was talking about. So I had that uh, association with it. In the early 90s, actually in, in 1990, a man by the name of Danny Rollin came to Gainesville. I was already in the Navy by that point. And it was August of 1990. And over the course of four days from a Sunday to a Wednesday, five bodies were found. Uh, He murdered five uh, young people in the town that I grew up in. And as luck would have it, that Friday, the last two bodies were found, as I said, on Wednesday. That Friday, I came home on leave. And I came home to a town that I couldn't recognize. There was not a a dog to be bought. There was not a gun to be bought. There was not a door lock. And you had just roving wolf packs of law enforcement officers um, going from every suspicious sound and funny shadow, kicking in doors, just hoping not to find any more bodies. Um, And when you, when something that is your hometown and especially uh, for those people that you grow up one place and you move somewhere else, you're always attached to your hometown in the military, Mm -hmm. especially. And to go back to some place that I had lived for 17 years and suddenly it was unrecognizable. It was, it was really unbelievable to, to, go back home to that environment. Um, also, when in getting my Associate of Arts and, and my bachelor's degree, you become familiar with a lot of that stuff. And in the case of Danny Rawling, the sheriff's office in Alachua County uh, ended up putting together a training program where they talked about everything that they did right, everything that they did wrong, and, and lessons learned and best practices. And I had the opportunity to sit in on that. And to see it from a very uh, intimate standpoint. And then when I became a deputy and started working in the areas of domestic violence, one of the primary motivators in domestic violence is power and control. That's, it, that's the, the buzzwords that, that are talked about constantly. One spouse is determined to exercise power and control over somebody else. Those themes, those desires are ratcheted up when we talk about what everybody thinks of in in terms of a serial killer. Mm -hmm. Serial killers want to have absolute power and control over life and death. And they, they talk about it as a primary motivator. Uh, They equate it to being a God when you can control whether somebody lives or dies, how they, how they die. Um, There are serial killers that, are, are so cruel and, and such terrible people that they will bring their victims to near death only to allow them to recover just so they can do it again. Um, there was a famous um, nurse serial killer in the late 1800s, uh, and she talked about she would poison um, her victims. Let me see, her name was Jane Toppin. Uh, she would poison her victims. And as they would be 
dying from the, the poison that she would give them, she would actually crawl in bed with them so she could feel their last breaths. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, these are Creepy. terrible, awful people. Um, but it's a similar pathology um, to people that want to have that level of, of power and control. So you start learning about those things. Where I became deputy sheriff in Hernando County, um, we actually had in, in my county, uh, over a number of years, two separate serial killers operating. There was a man by the name of Mansfield who kidnapped girls, raped them, and buried them in his yard. Um, he would eventually be uh, be caught and convicted out in California. Um, he was responsible for six victims. And where he lived, the mobile home that he lived in, his family still lives there. And you could drive by at least the last time I was in the county, and you could still see the yard. They'd never resurfaced it. You could see where they had dug up the bodies. Um, And then if you fast forward to the early 90s, uh, there was a man by the name of um, Irwin Mike Caprat. Uh, He was known as the Granny Killer, and uh, he killed four elderly women, raped and murdered them, and then set their houses on fire uh, to hide the evidence. Yikes. Yeah, so... We used to joke that we stole the line from um, the Lost Boys that if all the bodies in Hernando County stood up and walked around, that we'd have a hell of a population explosion. Yeah. (laughs) Because it was not uncommon to have bodies show up. You've been listening to Monster Talk a while. We we haven't really done anything on serial killers, but true crime podcasts have uh, absolutely exploded and, and dominate a lot of the content and uh, out there. And one of the reasons I've avoided it is because I've always been concerned about that. When you talk about serial killers, there's, um, there's, there's a sort of dark entertainment aspect to it. The people who aren't like, people (laughs) like to be sort of titillated and go through the details and all that sort of thing. And I've always been uncomfortable with the idea that, that, that of talking about it, in, in in accidentally glorifying the killers, you know, I, I'm 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 very empathetic with the the victims, and 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 that's kind of mm-hmm. that's been a leading reason why I'm interested in the topic. Uh, and so when you came to Karen and I and talked about possibly doing this episode, my only hesitation was around I don't want in any way to sort of glorify. These ter- right. these terrible assholes. Uh, right. I, well, uh, <laughs> murder porn is unfortunately popular. Oh, it's really um, really popular, and yeah. it's it's there's even uh, there's even a podcast. And again, as I said, you guys are the first podcast I listened to, but not the last. Um, Yay! I, you know, <laughs> discovered a thing for podcasts. One of us. There's a twelve step us. gateway. Um, yeah. Uh, there was even one I remember listening to. Um, I'm not going to name it only because I don't remember. Only listened to it one time, where the the hosts were sitting around happily getting drunk and talking with great delight about these terrible, god awful murders. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the, for me, that's really the the, the drawback and the downside to the, the popular culture adoption of so many of the serial killers and the, the murder porn genre is that it's 
it's looked at upon like a train wreck, like something you can't turn away from, but people take great delight in it. And they lose context of the families and the people that, that were completely devastated and completely destroyed. Um, when I saw the photographs of the, the crime scenes from Danny Rawling, by that point, I had seen autopsies. I had seen dead bodies. I had, I had seen what I thought was horrible things. And when I was seeing what he had done in, in the most graphic manner, even though the bodies were not visible, um, the, the photographs were sealed by court order, so you didn't see the bodies themselves. They were blacked out. But you saw their outlines, and you knew what had happened. And it's the closest I ever came to having to get up and leave the room. It, yeah. it defined the word awful for me. Uh, there's, there's nothing more terrible. And that's, that's the drawback to the popularization of, of real bad guys. Fake bad guys are fine. It's the real bad guys that, that people lose sight of. Mm-hmm. And I suspect we're going to get into that a, a lot more as we talk about people like Ted Bundy. And I'm just thinking, um, I know we've been chatting for a while already, but we should probably define our terms and talk about what a serial killer is and isn't. So could you give us a bit of a definition of a serial sure. killer? Um, there's a little bit of history with it. The, the term serial killer uh, was first used in the early 60s, but it really wasn't uh, developed as a term of art um, okay. in the Early 70s, a man by the name of Robert Ressler, a special agent at the FBI, uh, coined the term serial homicide. And that is the, the first reference that we have to the phenomenon that we think of when we think of a serial killer. And then as the 70s would go on, uh, Robert Ressler was part of the behavioral, what was then called the Behavioral Science Unit with the FBI. And that's a training division where they go around and do what's called uh, road shows and teach investigative techniques that, that, are, that are a little more advanced and, and network with law enforcement officers. Keep in mind that the drama that you see in, in most of your TV procedural shows between federal agents and civilian law enforcement is, is fantasy. Uh, it, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah, we'll get so, it. We, we'll talk about that a little more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it occurred to him that they're, they're talking about these behaviors and they're talking about these personalities, but nobody's ever really looked at them. Nobody's ever gone and, and seen if what they think matches up to what the bad guys were thinking. Um, so he started out on his own and then he teamed up with another special agent by the name of John Douglas. And the two of them started interviewing people and they put together a study. They interviewed 38 serial killers at the time and uh, teamed up with a lady by the name of Ann Burgess and wrote a book called Serial Homicide Patterns and Motives. And that is, that is the first real scholarly law enforcement book. And it's, it's, it's actually, it's a pretty good, as a textbook goes, it's a fairly easy read. It's not really difficult to, to follow. Okay. Uh, and they started defining these terms. So we, we came up, and of course, the FBI has a classification manual for crime, so that everybody's trying to be consistent. And when they developed the term, uh, a serial killer was somebody who killed three or more people with a cooling off period in between the homicides and that there was a, a 
primary motivator, what they called uh, an abnormal psychological gratification for, for their 38 that they studied and for the early days of, of defining this, it was all sexual. You had to have a sexual component. Um, since then, there have been larger studies, and for those people that are listening and thinking, wow, you did a, a whole 38 people, wow, that was, that's not a very big sample size. Um, subsequent studies have, have used many, many more, and unfortunately, in, in my opinion, the definition has gotten so watered down that almost anybody can be a serial killer now. Um, it, the definition now is two or more people with a cooling off period in between. And the, okay. the psychological gratification can be anger, um, can be money. But that's not when we think of a serial killer, when we think of these kind of behaviors, we're not thinking of somebody that's, you know, a, a, a hired hitman who just goes out, murders somebody and goes on with their day. Those are terrible, bad people. But there are different terrible bad people um, than what we think of as serial killers. And we also, we also, it was necessary to differentiate serial killers from spree killers. And those are murders who kill two or more people in a short period of time uh, in a, an extended geographical area. And then we, different, we differentiate them from, say, mass murderers, which unfortunately had become far too common in the United States which are individuals who kill two or more people, uh, usually in, in one key event, in, in one or two tightly controlled locations. Um, right. You know, years ago, those were a lot more rare. Um, but now, unfortunately, they're sadly common. <sighs> I mean, especially I, apparently in Colorado. Well, yeah, yeah. I was going to say the motivations could be all over the place, but are, are most serial killers sociopaths or does that vary? I mean, it seems like I know there's lots of reasons why people might sort of go over the edge and kill, but sociopathy is a very specific kind of mental condition. I, I don't know. I know they, there must be a correlation. Right. Well, correlation is, is everything. Yeah. Um, the, the problem with the terms psychopath and sociopath is that, they have become co-opted, shall we say, by popular culture, and they're thrown around. Right. You know, these are these are diagnostic terms. They're terms of art that actually mean something, whether it's fictionalized pop culture or mass media pop culture. They get thrown around, and it just becomes a, a, a term that is is a headline. Sorry, they're not really the technical terms, are they? I thought sociopath was. Was not was more a kind of uh, pop culture term, and that uh, a term like uh, personality well, disorder is used instead. Well, you can you can be a you know a sociopath wasn't invented by pop culture; it came out of our medical terminology. We've just okay. refined it a lot better to to where we we describe things far more specifically. But okay, you can't be a healthy, normal, functioning person and be able to store multiple bodies in the crawl space under your house. Yeah, right. It's it's the uh, the lack of empathy and the sort of disconnectedness from from what a normal emotional response would be. If there, if I don't even know if there is a normal emotional response to being a murderer, but <laughs> but uh, you know the the, the not it, being one. Well, right. Yeah, yeah. The, I, I haven't been one, <laughs> and and I think that's one of the problems. Is I think most 
your average person uh, is going to have a hard time understanding how anybody could do these things. You you kind of want to look for a quick explanation and saying, oh, well, they're they're you know they're a sociopath that explains it. But that doesn't even really explain it because there are sociopaths who are completely functional and don't go around killing people. So sure, uh, the, you know, as a as a as as you were saying, there's a very specific diagnostic meaning. So I was curious. I I I'm assuming, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm assuming that serial killers probably do tend to have some kind of empathy reduction mental condition. There's something's going Ab- on. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you you can't you can't do the things that they do and 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 be functioning the way we want them to be. Uh, they they display a variety of of behavior or a variety of mental diag- diagnoses. If my plurality is correct, um, you'll see borderline personality disorder. You will see antisocial personality disorder. Most serial killers, and, and again, we're talking about the classic impression of a serial killer. Most of these individuals are not what we would consider legally insane. If you met them, you wouldn't say that guy's crazy, but some of them are. Um, There's a man by the name of of Richard Chase. He was known as the vampire of Sacramento. Um, Richard Chase was crazy. Richard Chase didn't bathe. Richard Chase believed his blood was turning to powder, so he would uh, take the blood of animals and inject it into his arms to replace the blood that he was losing. Um, Richard Chase was the kind of person that if you met and talked to, you'd get a, you know what? He's not right in the head. Um, he would be responsible for six murders um, in California back in the uh, 77, 78 uh, He's been referenced repeatedly on CSI and Criminal Minds. And there was actually... A fairly decent, um, I don't know, docudrama is not quite right, a fairly decent fictionalized account of his behaviors called Rampage that really did a pretty good job of showing who his was. His mother was a diagnosed schizophrenic. Um, Richard Chase believed he was suffering from soft soap disease. And that's his, if you go into your bathroom and you pick up your bar of soap and the bottom of it's kind of gooey and wet, you too are suffering from soft soap disease. Yet somehow he would be found competent to stand trial. He would be found guilty, uh, and then he would end up hoarding his uh, medication and, and killed himself in prison. Um, wow! But he was crazy. He made no effort to conceal his crimes because, in his mind, he was he was doing what he needed to do to survive. And just for the record, crazy is also not an actual diagnostic. No, that's <laughs> right. But he, but colloquially, that's the kind of you know when we talk about somebody like Ted Bundy, part of Ted Bundy's destructive capability was that he came across as normal. He came across as mm-hmm. a reasonable person. Richard Chase. The reason they were able to catch him was he ran into uh, in a parking lot. He met up with a high school friend of his who he recognized, and he's standing there, and his shirt is covered in blood from a murder he had just committed. And he's talking to this person because in his mind, it wasn't, it wasn't anything bad. I hate when we jump off, but something I wanted to bring up, going back when we talk about definitions and in, in, in our classic serial killers, one of the most important things to come out of the study was a way to classify serial killers. 
and primarily because we're human, uh, they came up with two classifications, either an organized offender or a disorganized offender. And then anybody who they couldn't classify would be a mixed offender. Richard Chase is a classic disorganized offender. And it's because of his the mental illness that he was suffering that he behaved the, the, the way he did in his criminality, if that makes sense. Yeah, I was going to say it makes sense and that it doesn't make sense, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm wondering about a mixture of, of organized and disorganized. Um, could you provide an example of someone like that? It's, it's easier if we kind of talk about what makes organized or disorganized. Um, sure. When, when you're looking at, at a behavior, you're looking at a particular crime scene, a particular murder, the, the experts are going to look at who the victim is, how the victim was encountered, how the victim was killed, um, how many crime scenes you have. To use a, a simple example, let's, let's use uh, Richard Chase as an example. He would walk along through neighborhoods and try to open people's doors. And if the door opened, he figured that they wanted him to come in. If the door was locked, he knew he wasn't allowed to come in and he would go to the next house. Okay. He's doing this in the middle of the day. That is placing him at high risk of being seen, walking into people's houses. He doesn't know who's home. Are there, you know, women by themselves? Are there adult males home? Are there five people or one people? So it's a very, uh, there's not a lot of planning associated with it. That means he doesn't know the floor plan either. Uh, that's... Literally, he doesn't know where <laughs> anything is. Yeah. Wow. Uh, was, was, he, was he armed when he was doing this or was he picking up and improvising? Both. He had a 22 pistol that he would randomly shoot at people, literally just drive down the street shooting at people. Um, but he would frequently find, use the knives um, that were present on the scene, uh, like people's kitchen knives. Yeah. Um, the, he would commit sexual assaults, but he would be considered immature sexual assaults. Um, he would use foreign object penetration. Uh, there would be a lot of mutilation. He would consume the blood. Um, he made no efforts to hide the bodies. And when he was done, he just walked out the front door and walked home. So we don't have a lot of, of thought and planning. Now, if we, if we pick somebody different, um, if we were to talk about the BTK killer, for instance, um, a man by the name of Dennis Rader, he, was, he murdered 10 people in uh, – Kansas between 74 and 91, uh, and he wouldn't be caught until 2005. He was very meticulous, plotted things out. He tied people up. He took things but was careful with evidence. He put a lot more thought into, uh, into his actions, so he would be much more of an organized offender. Um, and actually, Bill, it was or Blake. I'm sorry, my, going back to the old days. Well, this is uh, my fault, by the way. That's, that's, <laughs> I'm gonna have to start calling him Bill now. Well, well, actually, <laughs> finish your thought, then I'll explain why I have two names. Because Karen has no uh, idea about this, so. Well, I, I kind of do. Do you? It goes okay, back. Well, we'll, well you're William's yeah. your first name, right? Yeah, but okay. I'm just going to William this. Blake, like the artist. here's what happened. So you join the Navy. Yeah. They put your last name on your shirts. And so no matter what I tell people, I'm Smitty, right? <laughs> so that's part one. <laughs> Two, is uh -huh. they always ask you, what's your first name? And then you end up being William or Bill or Will or any, you know, some sort of variant. And it, it just, I decided really early on in the Navy, 
there was no point in trying to correct people because everybody rolled back to Smitty or Smith or or, or William or Bill. And so what, by the time I met uh, Stacy, I had already just decided, you know what? While I'm in the Navy, I'm going to be Bill or William. That's, that'll be fine. <laughs> and then when I get out, I'll just go back to the people who know me as Blake and I'll be Blake. And, uh, and so I always know when a Navy friend reaches out to me because, boom, you know, I'm Bill or Smitty, you know, and it, it's just, uh, but, but so, so don't worry about that, it, Stacey. It's all good. Yeah. Um, he was, uh, going back to Dennis Rader, he was caught, uh, through your field, uh, Dr. Atlantis and that, uh, <laughs> he, he got mad cause he found out that somebody was going to write a story. Uh, a lawyer was going to do a book about the BTK killer, and he was offended that he didn't have the kind of national notoriety that other serial killers did, and he thought it was really unfair. So he started reaching out to law enforcement, and he sent them some of the souvenirs, and he, he was giving information, and he was doing it really, what he thought was really creatively. He would take a cereal box and he would put things in this cereal box and he would write in margin marker on the outside of the cereal box and he would leave it in a vehicle in the like a bed of a pickup truck where someone could find. And eventually he really wanted to, to, to communicate, but this was such a hassle. So he sent a message to law enforcement and said, Hey, I want to send you a computer disc and I want you, I want to know if, if I do, will you be able to figure out who I am? just from the computer disk. And law enforcement said, no. And they, they put that in a classified <laughs> ad. They said, no, send us the computer disk. We'll never know who you are. And wow. darn it. So he, he sends them the computer disk. And sure enough, there were deleted files on the computer disk that he didn't know were there because he put them in the trash can. And they pulled the metadata off the deleted files and it was from a church oh wow that he was the 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 president of the the church association it was from the (laughs) church's computer and sure enough they backtracked with other information that they had and then they arrested him (laughs) when you said it was my field i thought they arrested him based on puns i don't understand (laughs) (laughs) no that would be punishment so so that that showed a lot of ego. Is that a common trait amongst serial killers to have a big ego? Almost universally. Uh-huh. Um, it, it it's hard to say if it's. I've got it's, my eye on a few people now. Yeah, it's, it's hard <laughs> to say if it's true narcissism. Yeah, but yeah. it's yeah. it's certainly a sense of superiority to some people, and generally it's their victims. Um, Ted Bundy was couldn't believe um, that people got that upset about the women that he killed. Um, John Wayne Gacy was incredibly dismissive of the 33 young men that he murdered that uh, he using his terms, he referred to them as these little queers who cares about them. Um, Again, it goes back to the pathology of power and control. It goes back to the pathology of you should be allowed to do and, and what your role in the universe is. Not all uh, you know that the most important thing we understand. There's nothing that we can say that is universal, other than these people are monsters. They're terrible. They're awful. Um, but there are serial killers who are remorseful. Um, Ed Kemper is 
one of the more intelligent on the IQ scale, one of the more intelligent serial killers. Uh, he was murdering women in California. Uh, he's he's a, a, a very interesting character, very, very compelling guy. He was he murdered 10 women. He was known as the co-ed killer in the early 70s. And he knows he was doing terrible things. And after uh, his conviction, they asked him what was the appropriate punishment for someone who had committed his crimes. And his answer was death by torture. Wow. Uh, yeah. Eye for an eye. He had, he had no illusions about what he had done. Right. Um, so is it the kind of thing that can be rehabilitated or no. never? Here's, and, and I'm going to steal this from uh, one of the experts. Imagine that you and I are baking a cake and you and I follow the exact same recipe. And right before I put my cake in the oven next to yours, I pour in a quart of motor oil and I stir it in and then we bake our cakes together. When we get those cakes out, there is nothing I can do to fix my cake. I cannot remove it. There's nothing you can do to remove it. It's, it's ruined. And unfortunately, serial killers, you can't fix them. Um, they, frequently, they function very well in prison settings. Ed Kemper has turned down his opportunities to get parole. He feels he's undeserving of parole. And um, he's actually a fairly popular um, narrator of audiobooks. Does he use a pseudonym? Or is it for like the inside the prison system? Or is that like one of the job programs you can get into? I, I think he got into it as a job program, but nobody knows who Ed Kemper is. Gotcha. Are they uh, targets when they're in prison, usually? It depends on the individual. Um, for instance, I mean, the, the easiest example of that is to some extent, yes, because um, Jeffrey Dahmer was killed in prison. Uh, right. He was murdered by another inmate. Uh, very short time after he got released into general population. Uh, Ed Kemper, in his case, uh, nobody targets Ed Kemper. Ed, Ed is six foot nine. He went to prison at Whoa. about 285 pounds. And his means of, of killing women was, was removing their heads. Um, yeah. Ed was uh, a, a, a monster visually. Yeah. Uh, also, these guys are frequently on death row, um, so that's that's its own uh, isolated population. You're not just just right. hanging out right. with everybody yeah. else. These are monsters. Well, yeah, yeah, and that's the and they're, they're real, and 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 yes. they look mm -hmm. they look like Scary. generally speaking, they look like everybody else. I mean, obviously, yes. sometimes it's interesting. I I I'm, I I don't know how much I buy into some of the stuff that Malcolm Gladwell writes about stuff like, I think his book is, um, is it blink, blink, blink. Yeah. Just that sort of gut feeling, you know, there's something off with this person, but it happens now and again. I, I personally haven't ever run into anyone I thought was like life threatening, but you meet people and then sometimes you meet people. And then later on, it turns out that, you know, they're terrible, terrible people and you find, Oh, I'm not as surprised as I probably should be because I sort of felt something was amiss, you know? Yeah, probably still based in think at some point that you've, you know, yeah. it's just in the back of your mind. You've never really articulated it. Yeah. You've thought too deeply about it, but it's just something they've said or done has put you off. But it makes me think that if if, if we're going to do something here in this conversation, 
um, that I, that will help me feel better about covering this topic. It, it would be, is there any advice we can give people uh, around how to protect yourself from serial killers? Because sometimes they, they seem like they're opportunity killers, and sometimes they seem like they're very carefully stalking. There's, so, there's such a wide spectrum of who's going to end up being a victim. Uh, what what sort of things can a person do to sort of protect themselves from that? Because it, and, I, and I should point out, that, yeah, I was going to say I should point out that statistically, you're more likely to be killed by somebody you know if you're going to get killed, right? I yes. mean, so so it's low pri- low probability, but high source of terror. I think for a lot of our population, certainly um, statistically, um, you're at greatest risk if you're a prostitute. Uh, if you are a runaway, because those are individuals who nobody knows where they're at on any given time, seeing them get in and out of a vehicle, placing themselves alone with scary individuals, unfortunately, is is what happens. Um, we don't have the problem. We don't have hitchhiking like we did 40 years ago uh, as a as a very common behavior. Yep. But that was a that was. Uh, a means that a number of serial killers found their targets. If there's anything that you can say that that there's a, a lesson for non-victims is to trust your instincts. Uh, going back to Ted Bundy, some of his most famous terrible activities occurred at Lake Sammamish in Washington State over a holiday weekend, and that was when he was able to kidnap two girls in a very short period of time. What isn't often as, as known and, and discussed is at least five other women he approached, and they turned him down. One got as far as walking into the parking lot, saw his vehicle, and thought something wasn't right, and went back to her friends. Trusting one's instincts is, mm-hmm. is the most effective thing. Uh, he, he missed out on another victim, thank heavens. Uh, he approached her in the mall, claimed to be a law enforcement officer, and, and needed her to come come with him. And then, you know, suddenly they're getting into a VW bug that doesn't even have a passenger seat because he'd removed it. Her alarm bell started ringing, and she was finally able to listen to them and, and actually get out of the vehicle with a handcuff on her wrist. Um, so listening to one's inner voice when something doesn't seem right, when something doesn't feel right, making sure people know where you're at. Um, there was a terrible, awful individual in Tampa um, who murdered a, a, a mother and her two late teenage daughters out on a boat, raped and, and, and dumped them overboard. And he had raped another woman previously, and the only reason he didn't murder her was her friend was supposed to come with them, but her friend backed out at the last moment and he knew someone was waiting for her. Right. So he still raped her, but he didn't murder her in the middle of Tampa Bay because he figured he could get away with a rape, but he couldn't get away with a murder if somebody knew right then what he had done. Um, so inner voices make a big difference. Unfortunately, and this is part of the, the appeal, if we can use that word, uh, of serial killers, is that so often the victims that we think about 
aren't doing anything to put themselves at risk. They're sleeping. They're walking home from school. They're doing nothing that should place them into this situation. Yet, like a true boogeyman, like a true uh, monster from the shadows, something comes out and snatches them. Mm -hmm. So you use the word appeal, if we can use that term about uh, serial killers. Why does it seem that we have such a, or people, a lot of people have a fascination with serial killers and uh, that it's the subject of so many books and movies and uh, that it's romanticized and glorified. They check all our boxes. Um, and some of this, honestly, in my opinion, is, is kind of a chicken and an egg conversation. Does mass media and popular culture create the appeal or does mass media and popular culture respond to the appeal? It's, it, it, I don't know which one came first. Right. But there's something about if, if you hear of somebody that is in a convenience store at three o'clock and the convenience in three o'clock in the morning, and the convenience store is robbed and they're shot. It's a it's a tragedy without a doubt. But you're not shocked. You're not surprised. No one says, golly, at, at, at three o'clock in the morning, a convenience store got robbed. That's terrible. <laughs> we expect that. Or we, we understand that there's a certain amount of risk associated with that. We shouldn't, but we do. But when we hear about somebody who's doing nothing that places them at risk, it becomes a fear that we can all relate to. Also, there are lots of serial killers that never get the kind of play that a handful have gotten. And there's a lot of socio-cultural politics behind that, and, and we can certainly touch on that, but mass media and popular culture picks and chooses. And I want you to think about something, and, and Ted Bundy is, is unfortunately the, the easiest one to point to this. Um, whenever you see a news story about Ted Bundy, usually within the first paragraph, or if you're watching it on TV, uh, the narrator at some point will describe him as handsome. Yeah. They, yes. they choose to do that. They create a narrative that Ted Bundy was handsome, that Ted Bundy was charming. That's part of the narrative. The second thing you'll always hear about Ted Bundy is he was either a former law student or was an aspiring law student. Ted Bundy was a failed law student. I'm a former law student. Ted Bundy never finished his first year of law school. Ted Bundy was not a good student. Ted Bundy graduated college, couldn't get into a, a law school in Washington state, had to apply out of state, finally got accepted, gets to law school and discovers, damn, this is hard. These people are a lot smarter than me. Ted Bundy was not a success, yet you cannot see a story about him. You cannot read or hear a narration that doesn't talk about him as the all-American boy, that how he was young and up and coming, how he was very popular. We created this impression of this smooth and suave individual. Similar a little different, but similar with, say, John Wayne Gacy. John Wayne Gacy was 
the killer clown. He was murdering uh, at least 33 individuals, bearing most of them in the crawl space under his house. What made him compelling, John Wayne Gacy was not a particularly attractive individual. He was a convicted felon, but he had something that popular culture and mass media could, could gleam onto, and that was one, he was a clown at children's birthday parties. And two, there's a very famous picture of him standing next to Rosalind Carter back when uh, Jimmy Carter was still president. So you have something that's very visually compelling. You can build headlines about, of course, because he was doing this uh, back in the uh, 70s before we had clickbait. But the equivalent for the time of clickbait, you could build a neat, compelling story around him. But there's lots of terrible, terrible, bad people that are not that nearly compelling. They're not attractive. They're not glib or charming. And, and we don't think of them. So the media and our popular culture kind of picks and chooses who it is that we're going to elevate to that special standing. Right. Does that make sense? It does. Absolutely. It, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's consistent with a lot of the, the, I, I Recently, I've been thinking a lot about why we get monster flaps, and I wrote a paper. I went to an academic conference in Texas to talk about this, and one of the things I was talking about was how information's transferred and like what makes a monster flap happen. Now, this is separate from the question of whether there's really a monster. That kind of doesn't matter for the purposes of what I was talking about. Which, But it, I said that I think uh, maybe the basic unit of information transfer is the story. Because once that story gets out there, it kind of affects how other people subsequently experience the monster. Whether they really see something or think they do or anything unusual happens, it gets incorporated into their sort of this monster narrative around the area. And I think another part of that would be the, uh, the, the storytellers who are not experiencers, but who basically collect, uh, aggregate, and then repeat the stories. These, you know, they, they become repeaters. And that could be like just citizens, or it could be the the media, and and in this case, in the in the in the case of, of serial killers, these narratives they need to be compelling to sell papers, you know. I mean, or to mm -hmm. you know to get people to watch the news. And so the more interesting these people are, even if it turns out that's not really what was going on, you know, it, it kind of doesn't matter because a good story is what people crave. And that becomes the lore. Yeah, it becomes the lore, right? I mean, that happens again and again that, you know, if you dig in years later when the hype's over, you find out how much was wrong in the coverage, right? Monster. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy... UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, 
and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever, uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. This episode of Monster Talk is brought to you by Audible. Audible's offering Monster Talk listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Browse through their unmatched collection of titles, select one, and download it. It's that easy. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. When I decided to run ads for Monster Talk, going with Audible was the easiest choice because I use it all the time. I've been an Audible member since 2003, and I use Audible to prepare for many of the episodes for this show. Many of the books we talk about on Monster Talk are available as Audible selections. My pick for this month is Ghostland by Colin Dickey. We talked with Colin back in episode 149 when we were discussing the Winchester Mystery House. Ghostland is a wide-ranging look at the cultural impact of ghosts on the living. Whether you believe in ghosts as real spirits of the dead, or as psychological effects, or as just an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of undone potato. There's plenty of gravy in this excellent book. Ghostland takes you on a troubling journey through a variety of haunted landscapes. It takes you to meet haunted people and gives an unflinching look at the ways in which ghosts hint at the exploitative sins of our combined indifference to the suffering of the invisible living, the poor, and the fringe. Now, if that sounds bleak, it isn't. The text is so poetic, and the narration in the audible version so moving, that you will be haunted by Ghostland. With Audible, I can listen to my books on my phone or in my car while I mow the grass, and I can hop seamlessly between devices. And thanks to Amazon's WhisperSync, I can read a book on my Kindle and then pick up in the same spot on my morning commute with the audio version. You can select any of Audible's titles when you sign up for your 30-day trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. And I strongly recommend you get started with Ghostland by Colin Dickey. To download your free audiobook while also supporting Monster Talk, just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk and sign up today. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Monster Dog. As a species, I mean, I don't think any other species on Earth. I mean, there, people always wonder what makes humans special. I, to me, a lot of it is just around storytelling. Uh, you know, that's it. We sh- like to share information. We like to embellish information. We like to find reasons for things, and all that kind of ties in here. I think it, it, these are very and- compelling stories about. Uh, monsters uh, and innocent victims, you know, and are, mm-hmm. are, unfortunately, sometimes people try to make the victims seem to blame, and I hate that a lot. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. So, but uh, yeah, it seems very narrative uh, dependent for who becomes a famous serial killer and who doesn't, and which story wins out. Oh, it, that's all it is, and it certainly how media plays into it, but. You know, media 
is is only a component. Um, but it's hard to say would would Ted Bundy have gotten the play that he got, and would he have all the movies and and all the documentaries and all the attention if you know he'd been hideous to look at, um, if he hadn't been as charming, if he hadn't been as glib. Um, I'm going to argue no, and and simply because when you look at so many other people who simply weren't and who didn't have quite that that perfect boy uh, image that that honestly law uh, not law enforcement uh, the media crafted for Ted Bundy Ted Bundy was not special um, the media in my opinion made him far more special than he was he was a failed law student but yeah. you never hear that narrative no he I'm not was, handsome he's a creep and he was, was mean. He was not nice. Um, the you know that's another aspect that that doesn't get talked about is 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 he wasn't a nice person to Wait, lots of are people. Are you saying that the 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 deliberate stranger TV movie was not accurate? Is that what you're saying? Well, <laughs> isn't it interesting yeah. that Mark Harmon played that role and is now one of our procedural? Detective shows, which I think uh, you know, shows that there is a redemption narrative possible. It, you yes, just, you <laughs> but only in fiction. Exactly. <laughs> what happens though is, I would argue, I have argued that, in addition to that, what we end up doing is then we sanitize the behaviors. We talk about Ted Bundy about how attractive he is. We talk about Ted Bundy about how he had groupies. We talk about we we show an interview with Ted Bundy in a jail cell. Who the hell does that? But he's interviewed and he's sitting there calmly with his his legs crossed and his, his elbows on his knees, like he's got not a care in the world. The things he did to the women that he kidnapped is as awful as it gets, and unfortunately, that material almost never makes it even into, into the documentaries, even into the docudramas, certainly not into the newspaper. It, it, it becomes incredibly sanitized. So it's easy to go, well, maybe he wasn't that bad. Maybe they just died of fright. No. He murdered these women in the most graphic, vulgar, obscene ways possible. One of the most upsetting things is we, we keep referring to these women and they're faceless, they're nameless, um, and we're talking about him, we're referring to him by his name. He's remembered, and yet these women aren't. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's very upsetting to me that, that in all of these cases, these people are, are, are often glorified, and we remember them, and we, we remember the whatever narratives that, the, that have won out, and these victims are forgotten. Well, you remind me of um, uh, one of the complaints that's been bothering me for, for years. It's, it's about, uh, I guess, probably one of the first... It's not. He's not one of the first serial killers, but he's certainly one of the most famous because of when it happened, and that's Jack the Ripper. I was uh, going to mention him. Yeah, <laughs> and I was, there's a recent book out called I think it's called The Five, which is actually about the victims, and it's you know trying to give a human portrayal of these women and tell a little bit about the lives that they lived and in, in the the what it was like to live in that area of London, and and, and that's so 
unusual because it's all about the killer. It's all about the narrative. And that all goes back to the whole thing about the newspapers. I mean, there were newspapers looking for something. They had to try to compete with each other and tell the most salacious details. And and it it was all about the hype, hype, hype. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's changed substantially since then. I mean, it hasn't. Yeah. Um, The the short answer is no, it hasn't. Um, There's a wall in, in Gainesville on 34th Street, um, for anybody that's familiar with Gainesville knows what I'm talking about, that is kind of a, a free speech zone for graffiti. And uh, a section of that wall has been devoted to the five students um, that were killed by Danny Rollins. And this is many years later, and it's still there, and, and their names are still there. Um, and I, I believe wholeheartedly in, in remembering the names. And unfortunately, trying to remember the 33 names that John Wayne Gacy killed, trying to remember the 35 uh, that we, we know and believe that Ted Bundy is responsible for, to remember the 10 that Dennis Rader killed, the 6 that Richard Chase killed, the 13 that Richard Ramirez killed. It, it's really tough to remember all of them. Right. Uh, but, you know, within that is some, some stories of people who lived. Um, DeRoach was the woman in uh, the Ted Bundy series that survived. And she's a real woman. And, and she's amazing to, to, to listen to. Um, there was a, a serial killer in Tampa named Bobby Geelong. He was actually just executed about a week and a half, two weeks ago. He killed 10 women. And this young lady was the 11th victim and he kidnapped her. He kidnapped her on the day she was going to kill herself. She had a horrible childhood, but she was 17 at the time and she was going to kill herself that day. And he kidnaps her, takes her, rapes her, and she begins to find a reason to live. She begins to manipulate him, convinces him to let her go. She calls law enforcement. They arrest the daylights out of him. Um, And she's now a deputy sheriff in Hillsborough County. She gives motivational speeches. I bet they are very motivational. (laughs) How how bad's your day? Oh, you've had a bad day? Let me tell you about my bad day. (laughs) It's incredible. While she was in his vehicle, all she was doing was consciously touching everything she could to make sure that that's her, smart. Her fingerprints would be there. That's when, clever. When he got her to the, the, the room that he kept her in, the ba- from the bathroom to the bedroom, everything she could, she left everything she could touch, spit on, lick, anything that she could leave evidence of her existence. She did. Mm. Um, and she managed to connect with him to where he couldn't just treat her as an object. Mm. Um, and that's, but I mean, that happened. There's a, a terrible bad person by the name of Gary Hendick. Um, he was responsible for only two deaths, but he had kidnapped six women and he kept them in, a, in his house in Pennsylvania and he would torture them. And uh, one of the first women that he kidnapped, she survived long enough to kind of start to build a relationship with him and she convinced him that she needed to, to, to run out to the store and she needed to call some people. And he said, you promise you'll come back? And she said, yes, I promise I'll come back. 
and she got away and she called 911 and three other women were rescued because of her actions. Um, you know, these are, these are real people that, that encounter these absolutely God awful situations, uh, and manage to live. And that's, that's an inspiring part of it. Um, so it seems to me like often these serial killers are dehumanizing their victims. They no longer see them as human or as subhuman. Um, is that usually the case? Sure. Um, I mean, that's, that's, that's 101, whether they see them as objects, whether they see them as, as the means to an end, whether they see them as the problem that needs to get eliminated. At the end of the day, there is some level of depersonalization that is going along with them. Some serial killers take it to really an extreme degree. Jeffrey Dahmer, and there's actually a serial killer from England, and his name was Dennis, pronouncing it on Nielsen, Nielsen. Um, they're actually kind of similar in that they were homosexual men who preyed on other homosexual men and would bring them back and wanted them to stay around. They didn't want them really alive, but they wanted them to stay around. Jeffrey Dahmer tried to create living zombies. He wanted to be able to destroy somebody's free will, but have them still be available to keep him company. Dennis Nilsson would murder them and then keep them and bring them out and uh, have them sitting while he watched TV and things like that. Very much not seeing them as people, seeing them as mannequins mm. in the most traditional form of that word. Yikes. It, it's, um, I, I, I am always skeptical of when I see like in, in a fictional thing where, uh, they're doing a horror movie or it's a, a, a crime movie and the potential victim starts trying to give details about their personal life to help the killer or potential killer see them as a human being and that's apparently a fairly old thing in fiction i don't know if it actually is something that is supposed to work in real life and i don't know how effective it is but i was watching um uh, a larry cohen movie from the 70s called god told me to and i noticed that one of the first things that happens in that movie is a, a one of the law enforcement people is a, a confronting a, a, a mass shooter and uh, begins telling him all kinds of things about himself. It's like, you know, because it's like, why are you telling me all this? And he's, well, because, you know, we could be friends and you don't shoot your friends, do you? <laughs> it's like, well, you know, if you've already killed 15 people, I mean, I don't know that that's the, I, I'm just very skeptical that that actually works, but, but maybe I'm wrong. Do you know anything about whether that's actually efficacious or not? Sure. And um, it, that was not yeah. just an excuse to use efficacious, although I, I think, Think, uh, it's impressive. It's though. a good SAT word for all our younger listeners. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Good. <laughs> um, Nicely done. It, it works every time that it doesn't. What? <laughs> okay. right, we have a flawed <laughs> data set. We might have some survivor bias involved. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Anytime a criminal dehumanizes their victim, whether they're dehumanizing you know, a retail establishment that they're going to steal something from, whether they're dehumanizing uh, the owners of a house that they're going to burglarize, it's easier to do that. Sure. Um, I'm trained in hostage negotiation and 
one of the techniques that, that you use when you communicate with your, your hostage taker is you, you want to make sure that they see them as people. Um, it's a delicate balance because you don't want to see them as too important because you want to make sure the, the, the hostage taker knows you, that you care about them, but at the same time, you want to make sure that they humanize them. And, and if, if they blindfold, if they like bagged their heads or something like that to impersonalize them, that's considered a really dangerous thing. So sure, it is human nature that, that if we form a relationship with somebody, it's harder to victimize them. There's a guy by the name of Robert Rhodes. He was the known as a truck stop killer. He's responsible for somewhere between 30 and 50 deaths. And he was operating between 1975 and 1990. He would keep, and, and this is known from photographs, he kept some of his victims alive in, the, in his long-haul truck for weeks and months, victimizing them continually. You know, it's really hard to not know that person if, if you've, you've been responsible for every piece of food that they've eaten, every breath that they've taken, every trip to the bathroom that they've made, you're going to know that person. Yet, Robert Rhodes had no problem murdering them. You know, it's, so it's terrible bad people. 50 victims. Um, when we, we think about serial killers overall, and you said that a serial killer, by definition, could be someone who's killed only two people. Three or, um, three or more. So just historically, in terms of uh, other serial killers, what kind of scope are we talking about? The, the largest amount of people who've ever been killed has been 50 by one person, or are there figures uh, that are no. higher than that? There are, there are numbers that are far higher. The answer is yes. The problem with that is it becomes a morbid, a morbid record, you know, right. which, which, which serial killer, which country, which whatever... Gary Ridgway, who was the Green River killer, is known to be responsible for 49 murders, and they, ex they believe that he was actually responsible for 71. The woman I was telling you about, uh, the nurse killer around the turn of the century, Jane Topin, uh, she was known to be responsible for sure for 21, but they believe she was actually responsible for 31. There have been serial killers more often in undeveloped countries, countries that lack the advances in law enforcement and forensics where people have been speculated to have killed in the hundreds. The Red Ripper, Andre Chikatilo, uh, I don't remember how many he was responsible for. He was operating in the Soviet Union uh, back when it was the Soviet Union, but I want to say he was in the 50s. Uh, I haven't looked him up recently. So the numbers can be high. Fortunately, um, as modern technology gets better, as information technology gets better, our, our ability to determine that we have this event taking place sooner has gotten better. But there are, there are active serial killers operating right now in the United States that are known to law enforcement that are still... It's frightening. Yes, ma'am. It's also frightening to hear about uh, some of these killers who were killing back in the 70s through to the 90s and that they just weren't, weren't uh, discovered yes, for decades. Staying under the radar. Part of that is, is we talk about an organized offender. Organized offenders tend to have, have a greater likelihood and, and be more successful. In the case of uh, Robert Rhodes, he was a long-haul trucker. 
Um, he's believed to have murdered people in Texas, Utah, Mississippi, and Illinois um, from where they found bodies and where he admitted to, to kidnapping people. But he would find people at truck stops, hitchhikers, and give them rides. These people, by definition, are untraceable. At least, you know, nobody knows where they are at a given date. Um, and a lot of times they, he would kidnap couples uh, a, a male and a female because they thought that they would be safer um, having a male there. First thing he would do is shoot and kill the man and dump his body somewhere on the side of the road. And until that body's found, where were these people coming from? Who knew? Where were they going to? Who knew? Probably not your area of expertise, but it just reminds me of growing up. We're about the same age. The uh, I lived near the state highway uh, 41 cutting through Georgia and I would see hitchhikers all the time in the 70s and then you know really by the 80s that was not the case anymore and I don't know really what drove that cultural shift but it feels like a lot of it was things like urban legends more than actual known dangers but uh, there was a huge shift in the culture to the point that when I recently was, you know, giving my kids some very important cultural education by having them watch a, a lot of old John Carpenter movies, when we were watching <laughs> The Fog <laughs> and Jamie Lee Curtis is a hitchhiking uh, uh, character, uh, it, it was like that was scarier to me than the zombies. Like it was <laughs> it's like, no, kids, don't do that. <laughs> so it's Certainly just, some some victims used to be easier to acquire than they are today. Um, a variety of things have, have caused that to change. Not the least, which being, you know, there are states that hitchhiking is illegal in. There is a greater appreciation that bad things can happen. It, it's a change that's positive. It makes less victims. But we still have terrible bad people who are uh, kidnapping sex workers because they are uh, uniquely vulnerable and uniquely accessible. Can we talk a little bit about some of the sort of discrepancies between pop culture and the way serial killers are shown in films and, and TV sure. uh, and books versus reality? I what, what, One of the things that struck me during this conversation so far was, and I mean, I was already aware of this, but um, thinking about uh, serial killers in fiction, The Silence of the Lambs, so much of the stuff uh, that the... Uh, the killer in that film, not not Hannibal, but the uh, Buffalo Bill character. Yeah, a lot Dunn. of those. Yes, exactly. Th those. Um, a lot of the things that happen, the the way he captures people, um, his motivations are all based on a, sort of an amalgamation of multiple serial killers. Um, yes, he's a patchwork quilt. Yeah, he is. He really is. But but nobody, as far as I know, has all those. You know, no, you, you, you can't. Right. <laughs> um, uh, Thomas Harris uh, is is everybody's favorite serial killer author. He's lesser known for his book Red Dragon, which actually was his third, his second book, um, and Science of the Lambs was his third. Most often, especially in movies or TV shows, serial killers are props. They are. The, the object about which our main characters will, will act around, but you never, you never learn about their motivations, you never learn about their backgrounds, you never, you never get a, a bigger picture of them. Um, they are merely, merely objects 
their their boogeyman, uh, their shorthand. Unlike Thomas Harris's characters, especially from his books, he did a really good job of giving them depth. And part of the reason for that is uh, he was associated with Behavioral Science Unit, which then became the Investigative Support Unit, um, with Robert Ressler, with John Douglas, and was able to find real people to connect to. Uh, and again, especially in his books, um, there's a lot more depth. Uh, in the start in Red Dragon, the main bad guy in Red Dragon is uh, Francis Drawerhide. He's called the Tooth Fairy. Uh, he was actually inspired by Dennis Rader, the BTK killer. Um, so we have that connection right there. So some of those motivations kind of made sense. Now, BTK killer wasn't, didn't have the overbite and all of those other things. But he had some behaviors that made sense, such as going in and, and tying up a family, which is what the BTK killer did. When it came time to write Silence of the Lambs, he pulled from actually four different serial killers to create James Gum, the, Buff uh, the Buffalo Bill character. Everybody's really familiar with the Ted Bundy element. Um, I'm a little, little leery about everybody keying on that uh, simply because we only saw the character of James Gum use that to kidnap one person, Catherine Martin. Um, where she, he's loading a sofa and he hits her in the back of the head with his, his, uh, his arm in a cast. We know that Ted Bundy uh, at Lake Sammamish had his arm in a cast and was asking women for help. Uh, he asked at least five women who turned him down. He asked two women who took him up on the offer. We also know that when he started killing Ted Bundy, uh, when he, years before that, when he was in school, in Washington State, um, at the same time that he was killing, there were reports of a man with his arm in a cast who was dropping books and was asking women to help load books, help carry his books, help pick up his keys. Um, we don't know if any of the women that he killed were seduced in that manner to get close enough to him, but it's speculated. It's also speculated when Ted Bundy went back to visit family in Pennsylvania at one time, there were similar reports that occurred at the same time and women disappeared. Ted Bundy never admitted to those killings, but they are proxemic. So we have an element of Ted Bundy that becomes an element of Buffalo Bill, but it's not the whole picture. Gary Hendick, we talked about him a little while ago. He's the one who kept women in a pit that's also an element of Buffalo Bill. That, that's who inspired the pit and, and as opposed to some other place to keep uh, the women that he was keeping captive. We also talked about uh, Ed Kemper. It's not talked about in the movie, but in the book it's mentioned that Jane Gum killed his grandparents. The first two people that Ed Kemper killed before he um, was put in a mental hospital at age 15 was he killed his paternal grandfather and grandmother. And the last character um, is probably the most popular uh, serial killer inspiration, and that is Ed Gein. Ed Gein was known as the Butcher of Plainsfield in, uh, between 1954 and 1957 in Plainfield, Wisconsin. He's known for sure to have murdered two women, 
Ed Gein would inspire Buffalo Bill. He would inspire the character of Norman Bates in Psycho. And he would inspire everybody's favorite uh, lumberjack Leatherface. And the the real Ed Gein was nothing <laughs> nothing like any of them. No. Um, yeah, right. He's like he's been such an inspirational uh, uh, sort of what do you call it? I, he, he's nobody's tried. Well, that's not true. There is a movie about Ed Gein, or I, I wasn't there, sure there, if it was Ed Gein or Ed Gein, but whatever. I there, there's yeah, I thought. Yeah, there was one movie made about him that's fairly accurate. I mean, compared compared to the others, it's a friggin' you know, yeah. true life story. Yes. You know, it's, it's a newsreel compared right. to yeah. the others. <laughs> it's, I can't think of the actor's name, but he was he was like one of the main characters in that film um, about space vampires, Life Force. Oh, yes. but yeah, interesting Premium cinema. Yeah. <laughs> I it, it's just it's peculiar what an impact the real person had on fiction writers considering how little we know about what he actually did. I mean, we know he was digging up people, we know he was, he was uh making items out of dead bodies, and we know he killed at least two, was it two? Two. The two women that he killed. Um he's believed to have killed his brother, um but there's no proof of that. His brother he and his brother were fighting a fire in their fields. Ed ran to get help. And when they came back, they found his brother. His brother had died of smoke inhalation and had trauma to his head. But there was no proof that Ed knocked him out. And then that's what caused him to die. Did that, smoke that predates the woman he killed in the yes. store. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 He killed the hardware store owner and then actually waited a number of years and he killed the bar owner. What an odd was, man. He was a very strange person. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. He, he, was, he was known to be really nice. Um, his mother was incredibly domineering. She was constantly speaking out about the evils of sex and how women were terrible. And, and, Norman? And of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I mean, the, the, you know, he, the, the author pulled a lot of these elements. Um, but he couldn't form positive relationships. Um, it's rumored that he was kind of enamored with the hardware store owner, but those are, that's almost sidelines to what the other activities that he was doing. Yeah. But the, one of the weirdest details, and this will sound strange because I mean, he's got some really weird details, but he was so adamant, uh, in his defense that he never stole money from the cash register. Yes, of course he murdered the lady. Yes, of course he was a transvestite who used dead body parts in a variety of unusual ways. But he was no thief. Don't 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 disparage his character. <laughs> yeah, he, he didn't steal anything. Um, and he also insisted that he didn't have sex with any of the bodies that he dug up. No. No, That's I mean, come thing. on. What? Yeah, no, he said he said they smelled too bad. Yeah, yeah, which is oh, plausible, otherwise. by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, but he was, un, he was found uh, not guilty by reason of insanity, and he would end up dying of a heart attack uh, in a mental health facility. Um, he was he was an odd duck, but he would definitely, you know, and if you think about it. I know both of you guys are authors, um, but why invent something when you can reach back and go, okay, here's some pieces of this, and this is just unbelievable. 
let me put these things in my in my book. Yeah, yeah, uh, and definitely it's inspiration. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He 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 really. I mean, he has been. Uh, it's 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 fascinating because I feel bad for the people, the families of you know the real victims, you know, and at the same time. I revel in my enjoyment of the fictionalization of, of some of the stuff he did. I mean, I enjoy those things, but they're not, but I'm able to distinguish between real life and fantasy, you know? I mean, I mean, yeah. I, I, right. Psycho's a good story. Yeah. And Psycho's fiction. And we're allowed to like fiction. Um, you know, I, I, I don't have a real favorite, a favorite real serial killer. I have a favorite fictional serial killer. Um, but you know, I, I don't like the real people. The real people are are, are monsters. They're, they're as they're, bad as it yeah. gets. They're bad people. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Say the but, least. <laughs> you know. But on the flip side, my 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 favorite fictional is is the Tooth Fairy, is Francis Drollerhide, and it's because, with especially in the book, the book really fleshes it out. It's almost a redemption story. He almost overcomes uh, his desire to murder people. Uh, and only because of you know these terrible bad sequences of events does it not work out. But he was right on the cusp of being fine. So you know who doesn't love a good redemption story? I, you, uh, yeah, that's another conversation altogether. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, well, I mean it's fiction. Yeah, no, no, for sure. Yeah, and I I, I thought uh, what I actually enjoyed the first movie they did of that, and uh, yeah, and then the. I really liked uh, the uh, the second version they did uh, that had um, uh, was it Ray Fiennes that played the Ray Fiennes played Francis Hyde. Anthony yeah. Hopkins reprised his role, yeah. and it, it brought in the Incredible Hulk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's funny because they have um, uh, as far as uh, that goes, you know, everybody loves uh, Hannibal Lecter, but. Hannibal Lecter is not executing uh, uh, on. I mean, in in the book and in the movie, it feels like he's actually like doing this intense sort of case study and 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 resolving the answers by you know getting inside the head of the killer. But in the book, it's really clear. He's cheating. He's just playing the FBI because he yes. already he already knows who the killer is. He so, knows he, he he is the serial killer Dust Maxima. He's <laughs> you know um, he's he's fiction. There is there is nothing about him that's that's drawn from anybody. Nobody's that smart. Yeah. Nobody's that astute. His motivations never really come clear. You never get the backstory, at least in the two main books. You never get the backstory of of Hannibal Lecter. I don't count the third book because he never should have written it. So <laughs> I I don't even know what you're talking about exactly. So it's like it's one of those mini. It's like the the, the Highlander movie. I, I wish yeah. they had made sequels, but they never did. Yeah. Uh, it's you know. not canon, right? So exactly, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's fan fiction. That's all the third book and movie was. Yeah, fan fiction. Very peculiar. <laughs> uh, but it reminds me, though, because what they're effectively doing uh, is is pretending that Hannibal Lecter, the serial killer, is also Hannibal Lecter, the perfect criminal profiler. 
And one of the things I wanted to talk about are, are, are is profiling a is it a real thing that people do, and b does it actually help solve crimes? Uh, yes, and barely. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've got I've got a two inch book on my desk right now. I'm looking at um, that's all on how to be a profiler. So it's it's a real something. But, but yeah, but what? Yep, yeah, I'm so. The reason I ask is because uh, a few years ago, I got on this kick about trying to question whether or not my assumptions were true, and that's a pretty good thing for a skeptic to kind of get into. Is like, well, I've always assumed this was real. Is it? You know, and th- mm-hmm. and this is one of those things where you see it in media all the time, you see it in movies all the time, you hear it talked about, and when there's a criminal that they're trying to hunt down, they talk to profilers sometimes on TV shows as talking sure. heads, and it's like, sure. give you some insight. Well, great. Insight's great. What I really want is how to catch the murderer, and does profiling actually do that? And, and is mm-hmm. profiling actually accurate? And my reading suggested... No, and not so much, but you know, I, I wanted to see maybe if you had some more information. It's, it's real. Profiling at its best will refocus an investigation. Profiling at its best will help to know what to look for, say on a search warrant. Profiling can help inform uh, a prosecutor in how to direct uh, a case. Profiling doesn't give us the name and address and phone number of a bad guy. It just doesn't. Um, there's really no, there's nobody that we can really point to and say the profile caught him. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, more often, it allows us to connect multiple offenses, but it has inherent weaknesses. Now, these inherent weaknesses are absolutely known to the law enforcement community. Um, Robert Ressler, before he died, John Douglas to this day, will insist at the drop of a hat that what we see on TV and what we see in movies is not how profiling works, and that's not what profilers do. Law enforcement officers at the, the, the municipal level, at the county or state level, that's who catches these bad guys. There is no team of FBI profilers that has one stern but silent type, one slight idiot savant, and then a walking billboard (laughs) for the Me Too movement that goes into a town and suddenly fixes everything. Okay? That's just not what happens. Um, About the third time you called your secretary baby doll in the FBI, you'd be fired. Okay? It just didn't work that way. Um, But it makes for good TV. Profiling, you can't talk about serial killers without talking about profiling. And, and the most famous first profile, per se, was of the, the Mad Bomber of New York. It was, it was an amazing profile. Most of the profile was written based on absolutely, totally unacceptable social prejudices that they had then, such as because the person was from uh, Eastern Europe, that's why he was setting bombs, because that's what they did in Eastern Europe. Um, all sorts of crazy things. But it was really accurate. But it wasn't, it wasn't rocket science. The guy was sending letters saying, I hate Con Edison. So they said, I bet he used to be a Con Edison employee. Son of a gun, he was. Um, Con Edison's going to finally pay for what happened to me. He got injured on the job and Con Edison didn't pay him. 
So it wasn't that much of a stretch. The, the most famous part about it was the guy predicted based on how he did his W's that they looked like pendulous breasts, that the man lived with his mother, but in actuality he lived with his two maiden aunts. Um, and maiden aunt was what we used to say when people were lesbians back in the 20s and 30s. Boston marriage. Yeah. He would be wearing a double-breasted suit button. When law enforcement, the, the, the legend is when he answered the door, he was wearing a double-breasted suit. No. When he answered the door, he was wearing his pajamas. Um, when he said, can I get dressed? They said, yes. He went and put on a double-breasted suit. But that same psychiatrist who did that amazing profile uh, was called into profile in the, uh, the Boston Strangler case, and it was as wrong as could be. Jean, the murderer of Jean-Benet Ramsey has been profiled repeatedly. We haven't right. caught that person. The, the Unabomber, they were actually two competing vastly different profiles that were done of him. But here's how profiling helped in that case. Um, Ted Kaczynski had sent in his manifesto and said, look, if you guys publish this, I'll stop blowing stuff up. Obviously, I'm, I'm shorthanding this, but the decision was then, should we publish it or not? The profilers with the FBI said, yes, there's, there's an absolute chance that somebody will recognize it, publish it. If he stops blowing things up, great. If he keeps blowing things up, we can't stop him anyway. So maybe either A, he'll stop, or B, someone will recognize his writing. And sure enough, Ted Kaczynski's brother reads this crazy manifesto and goes, this sure sounds a lot like my brother. And eventually the FBI is notified and they arrest him. So the profile itself didn't do a whole lot. Again, going a little bit closer to, to where Blake is from, the Atlanta child murderer. Profiling was, was in full swing uh, during that period of time, and, and we're talking now uh, about Wayne Williams in the, uh, the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, it's, uh, by the way, it's uh, 10 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? So yes. when I was growing up, the, the murders were still happening, and that was absolutely terrifying. I, was, I didn't fit the profile at all for one of the victims it didn't matter it was on the news every parent was like trying to make sure their kids were home on time what a weird and terrifying moment in in, in our local history it was crazy yes after 10 o'clock your time yes well it's 1009 for real i was just trying to call it out like they used to do that they would interrupt the show they would like say there would be these weird little things we'd be like it's nine o'clock do you know where your children are? That was that was part of the broadcast of the regular evening like lineup. You know, you've got Dallas, you've got Fantasy Island, yep. you've got intermittent warnings. Do you know where your kids are? Because they're getting murdered downtown. You know, it's yes. It's, Has someone mur- murdered your child today? Yeah. Um, he was he was aggressively profiled, um, and that led to to some decisions about how to investigate it that led to some decisions about how to treat him. But most importantly, and some of this is a little apocryphal, uh, but supposedly this is, is how it went on. John Douglas was, consu- was the chief profiler that was working at the time. Wayne Williams has been arrested. He's only actually charged with two of the murders. A total of 23 children are considered part of the the Atlanta child murder spree. 
most experts, including John Douglas, believe that Wayne Williams was responsible for 11 of those. Uh, the rest were either copycats or somebody else. But he's, he, Wayne Williams goes on trial for two murders. And Wayne Williams, as the story goes, is doing great on the stand. The defense calls him to the stand. He's doing great. He's soft-spoken. He's making good eye contact with the jury. He's just doesn't understand why they're picking on him and he could never murder anybody and he's not very big and he's not some tough guy. And he's, Wayne Williams was, was very smart. He started his own radio station in his backyard and was interviewing people in the community, um, had his own production company. And he's just this poor picked on uh, member of the community because the incompetent FBI in, in Atlanta police department can't find the real bad guy. So the prosecutors talk to John Douglas and he says, you know, you've got to press him on all of these details. You've got to really, 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 really hold his toes to the fire. You need to get as close to him as you can. And if possible, you need to touch him. I've done a whole bunch of jury trials. There's not a judge I've been in front of that would ever let me get close enough to a witness on the stand to touch. But as the story goes, um, the prosecutor is quizzing him. Do you remember this? Do you remember? Did you ever do this? Did you ever do that? just every single minute detail. And finally, he's going over one of these murders. And he said, he asks Wayne Williams, he said, so when you had him in, in your car and you were strangling him and he was fighting, did you panic? And in a little voice, Wayne Williams said, no. <laughs> wow. And then lost it. Just started screaming, and cussing and, and all of this. But that was considered to be the, the, the breaking point is, now you saw the real Wayne Williams. Yeah, that's and, wow. That's like a that's a Perry Mason get him to actually say something on the stand <laughs> kind of moment. I don't, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's, that's that's a an attorney's cross examination fantasy come true. Right, right. Yeah, yeah that's that is an extremely <laughs> unusual a, thing. That's what yeah. Wow. So pro profiling has a role. God, we could talk another hour, but I think we're kind of running out of time. Um, yeah, I wonder if we should have Stacy back sometime. We could keep talking, as you say, for, for hours. I work for you. <laughs> First, I hope you've had a good time. I, I, we've really enjoyed talking with you. It's been um, really interesting. And, and I this, feel good about it. It's a fan fantasy. Well, what I like about it is I think we've done something here, talking about it in a way that I feel completely comfortable with. Uh, I don't feel any sort of murder porn guilt. So I, that was, I think, yeah, something. Yeah. Not, that's not your fault. That's me just being annoyed no, by how, how I, I, I want that to be the case. <laughs> the the murder porn genre is vulgar. It really is. But but I, the main thing I know is that this is an episode that my wife's actually going to listen to. So I'm kind of excited oh. about that. <laughs> For once. <laughs> so I don't want to speak too harshly on people who do enjoy this stuff because – People. They're in the majority, apparently. I don't, you know, but yeah. Uh, yeah. There's there's a world of difference between having an interest in wanting to learn about it and finding it compelling from a human standpoint and sitting on the sidelines toasting marshmallows in it. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at 13 books in front of me right now on this topic, either on individuals or groups of individuals. So... The last person to throw stones about someone being interested in that, this is me. This has driven a lot of my work. But as long as we can remember that these are real people and, and there was right. real suffering. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. But but since you've heard the show before, uh-huh. you probably know what's coming, right? <laughs> the final question. The most exciting part of the whole show. <laughs> Here's what people really want to know, Stacey. Yeah, but fast so, forwarded yeah. to the end here. <laughs> Absolutely. Stacey Sharp, what's your favorite monster? I have I have two. One's a real monster and one's a family monster. Okay. Um, and there's actually a connection and and part of this is something that I've gotten from from Karen. Um the real monster that's my favorite, and it's something that's been talked on about on Facebook recently, is the Wendigo. Ooh, and yeah. The, the reason I like the Wendigo is because there's there's both a social element to it. Um, the, the, the background of the Wendigo comes out of uh, the, the indigenous tribes in North America and Canada, and it's a very broad myth and, and, and lore, and it comes out of the times of, of famine, and it, it has a social component to where – it's better for everybody to have some because if you hoard stuff and you're greedy, you could, you could become consumed by the spirit of the Wendigo. And to me, that's really kind of neat um, <laughs> that there's this, this, this social training about how we should all get along and we should share and we should be concerned about each other. Otherwise one of us could turn into a raving monster and murder you. Um, so I think that's a neat aspect. But also kind of like I know, Karen, one time in, in a monster talk, you were talking about a lot of times with lake monsters. There's the myth of the lake monster because it's shorthand for children to not go and drown in the water. Right. So the, the, the water horse in Scotland is so kids don't drown. The, there was one you were talking about in, uh, in Africa. I don't remember what country that they had created a myth of a water monster and it was just to keep children from drowning in that lake or that river. Mm-hmm. So I think there's an element of that also with the Wendigo about don't eat people because you get prions disease and then you go crazy. <laughs> so <laughs> let's not eat people. Um, it so it think, is, it's a pretty widely accepted taboo, but yeah, yeah, there, there's, there's definitely something there because we, and we're planning on covering it. It's, I've been putting it off because I want to make sure I do service to the, the actual, there's some really interesting and sad stories around the Wendigo and, and, and mm-hmm. it, I, it's a compelling story. And that leads me to the, the, the family monster. Ever since and we started this with when, when my first son was born, um, when we would wash his hair, uh, he didn't like getting his hair washed in the shower. So why do we need to do that? Well, it keeps tangle monsters out. Ah. So by washing your hair, you don't get tangle monsters. And then in the house that we lived in, the, the master bathroom had these big 14-inch uh, ceramic tile was the floor. And I was always terrified that my son would would hop out of the shower and slip and bust his head. So what lived in the bathroom was tile monsters. And (laughs) if your feet weren't dry, the tile monsters would make you slip. And so you had to make sure that your feet were dry. And, you know, when I was doing this, I wasn't thinking about anything socio-cultural or anthropological or anything like that. I was just didn't want my son to bust his head open. Yeah. But yeah, I'm gonna have to try some of these. It, <laughs> it's how we 
it's how we communicate with our children in shorthand because, you know, Karen's child is, is at the age that he is. Is he really going to be receptive to you need to wash your hair because the oils in your skin will catch in your hair and it gets really dirty? No, he just didn't want his hair washed. No, yeah. Right. So we as parents come up with these ways, this shorthand to communicate to our children. Don't go in the water because the water horse, you're going to stick to the water horse and it will drown you. Uh, and don't run across the tile floor because a tile monster will make you slip and don't eat your next door neighbor because then you'll get a disease and you'll be crazy and eat everybody. You know? <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, how we incorporate monsters. Admittedly, when you were talking about family monsters, I was thinking about a, a dodgy uncle or something in the family. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, nothing, nothing nearly that sinister. You know, I, I don't believe in, in telling children things to, to, you know, really terrify them. I'm not no. a fan of that. Hmm. I grew up terrified of the dark, and and uh, my mother blames um, the Night Stalker. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And to to prove that I'm an adult now, I've I've since got it on DVD and I've watched the whole thing, and I can actually go to sleep the lights off now. Um, here's how much that affected me when I saw that at, at at four and five years old. I ended up having to go. Because I was so scared of the dark, my mother took me to the psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist asked me what was I afraid of, and I drew three of the monsters from uh, the Night Stalker. I mean, it it terrified me. I don't believe in terrifying my children, but I believe in telling them not to run on tile. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, yeah. right, right. I mean, it's it's a perfectly plausible, real danger. And a narrative about a monster is a lot easier for kids to understand and remember yeah. than, you know, it, for them to sort of like model in their head the scenario wherein they get hurt is almost impossible because they're immortal in, in their minds. Yes. You know, they yeah. don't know. Like I didn't even know what it meant to be scared till I had my own kids. I mean, oh, I, I mean, oh, gee. I, yeah, <laughs> where do we begin? But yeah, to my son, everything's a monster right now, like everything. But it, it still has this fun element to it. And. Right. And the neat thing is those are the kind of monsters they'll just grow out of. Right. Exactly. Yeah. When my son goes into the Navy, I'm not worried that he's going to tell his commanding officer that there's tile monsters. Right. Um, (laughs) Hopefully not. (laughs) Not if he knows what's good for them. Yeah. uh, (laughs) It's not like eating a bug or something. Before he before he's like heading out, you know, you should also teach him about the embarrassment monster because. Good point. Well, Stacy, it was so good to actually hear your voice. It's been fun seeing you online, and uh, but actually, like connect, you sound exactly the same. It's amazing. You look the same. It's it's really nostalgic. Why aren't you aging, <laughs> you son of a bitch? <laughs> I've, I've, I've aged well. The aging monster. <laughs> yes, I remember when Blake had hair on the top of his head. Yeah, it, uh. yeah. Exactly. They sure as hell don't now. Good Uh, Lord. And and Blake had a fanny pack before fanny packs were cool. Oh, and I've lost enough weight and still wear it. Oh, my (laughs) God. That was like the greatest thing. I I, I still have my fanny pack from back then, and I'm wearing it. Well, not right the second, but I can wear it now. It feels good. Yeah. He was the only man in the entire country to have a fanny pack. That's probably true. Good on you, Blake. I was I was riding around the country on a fixed gear bicycle with my fanny pack. I had several men uh, try to pick me up, and uh, 
I don't know why. <laughs> I'm sure it was the bicycle. Your eyes. <laughs> I took it as a compliment. I took it as a compliment. I said no, but I took it as a compliment. <laughs> well, you two are going to have to catch up. You're going to have to meet up. We, we, we do because I, 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 I bet you there's a crap ton of great stories that involve me that I don't remember because Navy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Stacey, thank you for not only for coming to talk to us, but for your service and for yes. all the work you've been doing. It's really great. So thank you very My much. Pleasure. This was excellent. Thank yeah. you for your time. All right. Have a good night. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with Stacy Sharp about serial killers. If you'd like to talk with Stacy, he's a regular contributor to our Facebook group, and I'll put a link to his contact information in the show notes. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. As always, thanks for listening. been a Monster House presentation.